Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. Ray Naylor's novel, The Mountain in the Sea, asks the kinds of questions about us, our future, and our interaction with other living beings that are raised by many great works of science fiction. In his book, the marine habitat of a hyper-intelligent species of octopuses endowed with their own language and culture is seized by a global tech corporation determined to harness this non-human intelligence for profit in new systems of artificial intelligence. This dystopian future world is one of total surveillance, vast polluted dead zones, climate breakdown, a pervasive alienation, frequent targeted assassinations by governments and corporations against those who resist bondage, as well as human trafficking and the brutal enslavement of workers, especially those from the global south. The lack of empathy we have for each other is reflected in the lack of empathy for other life forms. Our last common ancestor with octopuses is a flatworm that inched along the seafloor 750 million years ago. At that point, we and all cephalopods travel down separate evolutionary pathways. We already know that octopuses with nine brains, including one for each tentacle and three hearts, are highly intelligent. They can change their color and shape to render themselves indistinguishable from the surrounding landscape. They can recognize individuals outside of their own species, including human faces. They can escape from sealed aquariums and walk around at night. They have been observed using rocks, broken shells, broken glass, bottle caps, and coconut shells as tools and construction material for underwater cities. As Peter Godfrey Smith writes in Other Minds, The Octopus, The Sea, and The Deep Origins of Consciousness, cephalopods are an island of complexity in the sea of invertebrate animals. Because our most recent common ancestor was so simple and lies so far back, cephalopods are an independent experiment in the evolution of large brains and complex behavior. If we can make contact with cephalopods as sentient beings, it is not because of a shared history, not because of kinship, but because evolution built minds twice over. This is probably the closest we will come to meeting an intelligent alien. And yet, as Naylor writes, we know little about them, how they think and communicate, how to interpret an intelligence so foreign to humankind, one that has the potential to rival our own. This lack of connectedness with our own species and with other species, Naylor argues, dooms us. Joining me to discuss his novel, The Mountain in the Sea, is Ray Naylor. So uh, I now I have to read books about octopuses after reading your <laughs> novel, uh, but um, it, it's, it's scientifically grounded in that sense. Mm. Uh, I just want to begin by talking a little bit about these amazing sea creatures. Um, and uh, I think you do a good job in the book of uh, kind of exploring the possibilities of forms of intelligence that even to this day we don't understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I wanted to make a, 
a first contact uh, story that wasn't about aliens from another planet, but uh, but rather sort of a first contact with another. Uh, I'm not going to say another intelligent species because I think there are a lot of intelligent species right now uh, on on planet Earth, but another uh, symbol using species, and that's uh, what sets us apart from all other animals. It's not that we have large developed brains, although that's a part of it, but it's actually because we use that brains uh, use those brain the, those brains to uh, uh, use language and symbols, and language and symbols give us abilities that that other animals don't possess. Uh, to preserve information and pass it on in complex ways. And so it's more of an exploration of uh, meeting another species with that language capacity that we have, but having that species be, as you as you mentioned, uh, the cephalopod, uh, the octopus. Uh, what uh, makes the octopus different from our own species is uh, they, they are very uh, isolated. Uh, mm-hmm. They don't live very long. And, and of course, you're talking, I think, uh, you can explore this, uh, but uh, deep sea cephalopods potentially have longer lifespans. And what you uh, ask in the novel is what if they had a long enough lifespan? What if they could pass on that knowledge to the next generation, which is not part of the octopus species at the moment? And yet they uh, are able within their short lifespans, which declines after mating, uh, to achieve phenomenal uh, kind of uh, uh, intelligence, for lack of a better word, to deal with the world around them. Yeah, they're this extraordinarily curious uh, animal. I think one of the things that we really love about them, and we really do love the octopus. Um, you know, people have mentioned that uh, in an aquarium, for example, most of the time, the only animals that end up with names are otters mm-hmm. uh, and octopuses, maybe a few seals. Uh, so we have an affection for them, and I think it's because we recognize in them this really complex curiosity, this uh, engagement with the world, which reminds us of ourselves. Uh, and yeah, so what I posit in the book is is an octopus species that can survive mating and not enter into the state of senescence, uh, which is what happens to both male and female octopuses after they mate. The men, uh, the male octopus basically wanders around in a sort of comatose or half comatose state until he's consumed by other sea creatures. And the female tends her eggs uh, without eating herself uh, until she uh, passes away. So uh, the main characters in the book say that the things that need to be overcome are the short lifespan and the inability to pass information on from one generation to another. Uh, the passing on of information and uh, the ability to do that is sort of what gives us our technical advantage over other species. If we talk about technology, probably the primary technology that we possess is uh, this complex uh, language that we can use to store and pass on knowledge. So yeah, those two things are overcome. And then that allows the octopus to evolve in a much more complex way than it even has already. I want to talk about the way they communicate, um, because in the novel, um, they have a system of communication. They're kind of transparent. They use symbols, and much of the novel is the attempt by the protagonist, uh, this scientist, uh, Ha uh, Nugent, pronouncing it correctly, um, yeah. uh, to decipher that language. Um, but mm. s- speak about that. Yeah, so um, what's interesting about evolution, right, is that quite often you get a capacity that grows out of uh, a set of abilities that weren't intended, a, a bodily 
uh, function or, or some kind of bodily mechanism that wasn't intended to support that. And a really good example is, uh, is speech, where we've adapted a mechanism that's used for eating and breathing into uh, a mechanism that we use for communication. And so uh, what I extrapolated, what I imagined that is that if the octopus was going to do that, it would use its uh, a technique called the passing cloud that the most cephalopods have. The octopus has it and the cuttlefish does as well, where they imitate the movement of shadows across their skin in order to startle uh, prey. And this is something that we've that's been recorded. There's many videos of it. If you look up passing cloud, octopus or cuttlefish on, on YouTube, you can get some nice ones. Uh, my idea was that they could use this to create symbols or uh, a sort of pattern on their skin that they could communicate with. And that's the sort of core uh, language that they use in the book. Uh, similar to humans, they're just using a function for another purpose. Uh, and that's quite often how evolution works. One of the things I love about the book is how uh, this species views the human species. Um, and I'll, I'll let you spin it out from there. But I think one of the messages from the book is the lack of empathy we have for each other and the lack of empathy we have for other sentient living beings is one that will completely doom us. Uh, but I think that perspective, which uh, you do a really remarkable job of painting, is important. So how do they look at the human species? Well, I think that they view the human species uh, in the book uh, as, as a threat to them most of the time. Uh, most encounters, when you think about encounters that human beings have uh, with an octopus, most of those encounters are violence. Uh, a lot of those encounters involve us catching and, and, uh, and consuming them. Uh, or entering into their habitat in a sort of sudden way. Uh, and so um, there's a lack of empathy uh, on our on our side, of course, for the octopus. And, and I think we take that into stride. We're, we're not very empathetic of a lot of species, especially the ones that we eat. Uh, but there's also a lack of empathy in the book on the part of the octopus toward humans, since it's, uh, you know, a species that they have a history of sort of violent interaction with. There's an indifference uh, on their on their part toward us as well. And it's a lot of the book is about the overcoming of that indifference. It's a mutual indifference. I think at one point uh, in the book, uh, it's called a, a mutual monstrosity, meaning that uh, we are monsters to the octopus in the same way that the octopus is a, is a monster to us. And yet you talk about the human species every time it confronts a species which it doesn't understand and can't read, its knee-jerk reaction is to kill it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, correct. And, and, and I think that, uh, you know, it's another, another thing that they go into in the book. Uh, you know, there are more positive and negative uh, interpretations of our species interaction with other beings. But one of the characters insists that, in fact, we're the ones responsible for the extinction of most of the other human species. And that the reason that the only Homo sapiens is around is because we, in fact, killed the Neanderthal and all other surviving uh, human species that, that we could instead of embracing any sort of uh, empathy with them. Uh, and I, I think that when you look at our overall you know, history with other species, it is, it is largely one that lacks uh, empathy. We, we do have some empathy, of course, for dogs and cats and, and other animals, uh, domestic animals, but not much uh, for animals in the wild and certainly not much for animals that we uh, consume. So that's a, a chunk of what the book is about is certainly about that lack of, of empathy for 
uh, those outside the human, but I think it extends to the way we think about ourselves as well. Um, there's a lot of lack of empathy for other humans. You also paint a very dark vision of the future, uh, giant corporations and governments who will snuff out the lives of anyone who gets in their way, uh, a return of slavery. Well, slavery has always been with us and is still with us, uh, but uh, the sections of the book take part on an auto trawler that's scraping whatever fish is left uh, off the sea. There's wholesale and complete uh, surveillance. Talk a little bit about that vision uh, of, of where we're headed. Yeah, so it's uh, it's interesting. You should you should mention the uh, the auto uh, trawler and and that AI in particular. So what's interesting about that part of the book is the slavery that it talks about is something that exists right now, um, and most of that section of the book is based on uh, research that I that I did uh, into the human trafficking around the fisheries uh, industry right now, uh, and interviews uh, with uh, with people who are victims of that human trafficking. Uh, and then that was also an issue that I was working on uh, when I was in Vietnam. Uh, one of the the many issues I worked on as environment science technology and health officer there. So that part of the book, the only part that is different is that the ship is captained by NAI. Uh, otherwise, the a lot of the descriptions of what it is like to be a slave uh, on a on a ship and be trafficked into this industry are uh, not futuristic. In fact, they are happening right now. Well, let's talk about it because the uh, in the one character that you focus on is lured into a brothel and drugged, uh, and then uh, they there are brutal guards on the ship and they survive on fish cake. Talk a little bit about what the what is like. Yeah, so uh, you know, people who are victims of this trafficking are often uh, they are lured uh, to to work on ships. They're, they're sometimes fishermen, um, but they can sometimes be people who just fall into the wrong uh, circumstances. I mean, the practice of kidnapping people uh, to force them to crew ships is a very old one. Uh, it's uh, something that was practiced, of course, by the by the British Navy uh, among you know many other actors. But it's something that continues to be practiced. And, uh, you know, there's a little bit of invention in the book around how and who gets trafficked, mostly because uh, it's a sort of middle class person who gets trafficked. And uh, and the reality is that most of the time, uh, the victimization is of people who are at lower income levels. But, you know, the gar the guarding of crews, the uh, not letting them out uh, when the ship docks and keeping them locked below decks in you know freezing conditions often the uh, insufficient food all of that is is basically uh things that are happening right now to thousands of people um as we speak i want to talk about the main character um she embodies a characteristic i think most of the characters in the book possess and that's a deep alienation that that seems to be a, a kind of common theme among the characters in the book uh, can you talk about that alienation and why it exists. Yeah, I think um, in her particular case, it's, I mean, it's a complex alienation. It's the kind of alienation that a very uh, intelligent uh, person feels when maybe confronted with uh, other people who aren't interested in, in the same uh, deep issues that, that she's interested in. It's the alienation of someone who's very driven uh, in, in a field uh, that is, uh, uh, very narrow, right? It's the alienation of an orphan um, that was brought up in, in an institution. 
um, the alienation of, I mean, she has many reasons to sort of uh, feel that way. Other characters have different reasons. You've got um, one of them who is a veteran uh, of, a, of a very brutal war. You have another one who is the only uh, android uh, on earth and so feels alienated because human beings are afraid of them or don't understand them. So there's a lot of different levels of alienation, but a large uh, you know, sort of theme I think in the book is how does one overcome this feeling of separateness from people with whom we are in fact intertwined? How do you get from alienation uh, to involvement? Well, the the at the end of the book, Ha smashes the uh, tablet or whatever it is, a screen that uh, has allowed her to have a virtual relationship. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's one of the steps along the path. And I think uh, you know there are other ones, uh, and that ongoing sort of conversation that she has with Evrim. Uh, throughout the book about uh, identification with with Evrim and and what consciousness is and and all of those things. There's many steps in her sort of journey toward complete involvement. But I think that um, a lot of if you were looking for a sort of um, a core idea about the evolution of characters in the book, it's an evolution from uh, a sense of alienation, a reductive sense of alienation, to a sense of involvement with others and responsibility toward them. Well, a lot of the, one of the sub-themes of the book is consciousness. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you brought up Evren, who's the AI, this very sophisticated AI robot who's a composite of all sorts of uh, human minds. I'll let you talk about it. Um, And then talk a little bit about the hacker. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Uh, Uh But that that whole, uh, talk about, I thought that was a fascinating kind of part of the novel. Yeah, so Rustem is uh, is a, a one of the world's best hackers in the book, and his job that he is given is to is to break into what he first just sees as a as an AI system. Um, of course, this later turns out to uh, in fact be Evrim's mind, um, and uh, his choices uh, about how he's whether he's going to do that and uh, and whether he will continue to work for the people who hired him are are a big part of the book. The book is basically split into three separate narratives. You have the, the Ha narrative on the island, um, you have studying the octopuses, you have Rustem, uh, the hacker, and then you have the AI ship, um, the sea wolf. And so those are the sort of three narratives, but all of them are connected. Uh, and they, you'll you see at the end of the book how they come together. I would say that in a, in a way, uh, there's the main narrative of Ha and Evrim and Altan Setseg on the uh, island. And the other two are sort of feedback loops. They, they show us what happens when certain kinds of decisions uh, are made um, and what the consequences of those decisions are. In one of the loops, positive, and in the other one, negative. You begin each chapter with a passage from... Uh one of the books, I mean, I thought you use it quite effectively to kind of focus around an idea. I just want to read one of them and have you comment on it. Um, But what could be more illusory than the world we see? After all, in the darkness inside our skulls, nothing reaches us. There is no light, no sound, nothing. The brain dwells there alone in a blackness as total as any cave's receiving only translations from outside, fed to it through its sensory 
apparatus. I hadn't thought about the brain like that, but of course you're right. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the big uh, themes of the book is translation. And, and one of the interesting things about, about life is that life is fundamentally about translation. Um, what that quote that you, that you read is, is talking about, of course, is the fact that we don't, in fact, see light in the way we think of it. No, no light is striking any part of the brain and shining on it. Uh, the light hits our eyes and then is translated into a completely different signal through a different mechanism uh, to a part of the brain that then perceives that that light exists. And so it's a, it's a fundamentally life is about the transmission of information from, uh, you know, some, some signal, some information bearer to a receiver of that information. Our brain is one of those receivers. And we don't often think about it that way, uh, but nothing really reaches us without being translated, including our senses, all of our senses of smell, taste, touch, etc. They're all translations of what's going on in the world. We don't have any immediate contact uh, with the world via our, our brain. Our, our, our contact with the world is mediated always through the sensory apparatus. And the contact with the world of any animal is mediated through its sensory apparatus. Well, you also talk about how language, language is built around what we can uh, visualize and see is as true for human beings as it is for uh, the octopuses that uh, you write about, um, and that this creates limitations that I think you're asking us to try and overcome. I'm going to read another quote, again, from the beginning of one of your chapters. Again and again, I asked myself how humankind could transcend the limitations of our own form, the rigidity of our structures, Again and again, the solution seemed impossible. In our bodies, as in society, our structures are built to replicate themselves and themselves only. We are embedded in habit. We dread the truly new, the truly emergent. We don't fear the end of the world. We fear the end of the world as we know it. Yeah, it's, sometimes when you read these passages, it's funny because I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I do that with my own books. That's fine. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> That's pretty good, though. It's, you should remember that one. <laughs> it kind of comes back to me as, you, as you're reading it. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think I think what that passage is sort of accenting is the bodily difference between humans and, and octopus and the octopus. So the octopus is this very fluid being, and you talked about the. Uh, so it's not so much that the octopus has nine brains. It's really that the octopus has a, has a distributed neural network where most of the neuron, neurons that we would normally have in our brains are distributed throughout its body and limbs. And so it's a very fluid structure. In a sense, um, think of it as a, as a way of uh, overcoming this mind-body separation. We, we can often feel very separated from our bodies precisely maybe because our brain, the locus of so much of that neural activity is inside our skull, which is perched on this spine, which then we think of as this command and control system. It's not, doesn't really work that way, but it gives us a rigid set of metaphors about life. And the octopus, if it was gonna come up with metaphors about life would have to have a completely non-rigid uh, set of metaphors because the octopus literally flows through its environment um, in the way, like, somewhat like a mind, drifting in the ocean. I think that's what Peter Godfrey Smith, uh, you know, said about it. And Peter Godfrey Smith was a, an enormous influence on this book. I mean, if, 
if it was a piece of nonfiction, he would have been footnoted all over the place. Um, so, so I think that's uh, that's kind of what that what that is talking about. And then I think that the other thing, of course, that's being addressed is the fact that we are very fixed, not only in our skeletal structures, right, and our physical structures, but in our habits, which we constantly reproduce. So, uh, you know, our institutions reproduce themselves. Uh, people reproduce the same structures uh, over and over, and it's very, very difficult to unlock ourselves uh, from that kind of uh, reproduction of the same. One of the things you challenge is the idea that when we reach out to an alien species, it will be achieved by technology. Uh, and you say this r rests on the false assumption that all languages have a single conceptual foundation. Um, and, and I want to talk about that because it isn't technology that finally allows Ha to communicate, but uh, being able to step inside the habitat and the world of the octopuses themselves. Yeah, correct. It's uh, it's not technology that's that's really going to be key in a sense it's uh it's empathy so it's it's the ability to imagine oneself in the place of someone whose situation is fundamentally different from your own um and i think this is the key to communication we talk about um you know children having this model of other minds so one of the things that evolves very quickly in a child is this sense that there's a brain inside you and a person inside there and that you are real and that part of its interaction with the world is that acceptance that there are other beings in the world that, that are real. Um, extending that beyond you know, our own species is a difficulty, of course, because we often don't extend it even to other members of our own uh, species. We have difficulty uh, you know, having sympathy for people with other cultures, um, much less people, uh, much less you know, creatures with completely different ways of communicating. But I think that one of the things that I was sort of getting at is that in the end, the technology that will be used is that is the technology of of empathy and bridging the gap. And there's gaps in all languages. Um, I mean, a very a few very simple examples, right? Um, there are two words for the color blue in Russian. Uh, there's голубой and синий, but in English we call both голубой and синий blue. Uh, they have a very distinct sense of those two different colors. Uh, and even a pretty distinct sense of when, where one begins and one ends, but we don't have such a thing. Uh, other languages, for example, uh, like Turkmen, uh, don't have a word for green. They, uh, they simply say leaf blue, essentially, right? So the way that languages cut up the world and the, the, the way that they um, create this map of our existence is different for every language. Uh, so even in human communication across languages and, and between individuals, there are big uh, gaps to be bridged and they're bridged by empathy. Well, we both speak other foreign languages and I think one of the gifts of stepping into another culture and speaking another language is that it gives you a kind of refracting lens to look at yourself and your own society in new ways. Yes, 100%. Um, I, I was just, as you were saying that, I was thinking that that's, that's one of the amazing gifts of learning another language. I think the other amazing gift of learning another language is, uh, is humility, because there's nothing more embarrassing than constantly making mistakes <laughs> in another language. And I think if there's anything that's just taught me how fundamentally ridiculous sometimes human existence can be, it's 
trying to stagger through interactions in a, in a new language and make yourself understood by others. Uh, and I think that's a, a big part of, of why I wrote this, wrote, wrote this book is it's really about that staggering toward real communication and, and how one does that. Well, I will say every time I got really angry, I switched to English with all sorts of words you can't say over the air. Um, I have to ask you about this because it's just a kind of minor point of the book, but I just kind of found it fascinating. You write in 1909, the municipal, this is in Istanbul, collected all the stray dogs, ferried them to an island in the Sea of Marmara and abandoned them, left them with no food and water. Their cries were heard throughout uh, the city for years afterwards. The residents of the city were disturbed by the smell of the corpses even long after the bodies had rotted away. And there was a superstition later that the defects of the empire following this incident were punishment for what was done to those animals. Just talk about that. I, I, I just love that. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's a true story uh, in, the, in the sense that uh, at, some, at some point in, in its efforts toward uh, modernization, which, uh, you know, the, the Ottoman Empire perceived modernization at the time as uh, becoming more like the Western European empires. They rounded up all the street, the, the street dogs, which had been revered in, in Istanbul and had been traditionally taken pretty good care of and now are taken care of well again. And they put them on an island uh, in, in the sea and left them uh, to, to starve to death. And that was, uh, you know, and there were people who rode boats out there to bring them food, etc. But, uh, you know, it ended with all of them perishing. Now, the part about uh, people being haunted by that uh, and perceiving it as um, what caused the eventual downfall of, of the empire is uh, is a little bit of, of um, let's say, uh, you know, poetic license. But the, inst- the inc- incident is real. Well, and we should be clear that during the Ottoman Empire, there were mosques devoted to the care of stray animals in the same way that the, you call the, all these Tibetan auto monks, people are going to have to buy the book, care for the sea turtles and the creatures in this uh, sanctuary that has been bought up by this corporation where the octopuses live. Yeah, uh, the, the Ottoman Empire was actually uh, presented a model for the care of, of stray animals and uh, wild animals. There were societies to protect storks. There were societies that specifically took care of wolves. Uh, there was a mosque, there is a mosque completely dedicated to uh, kittens, right? Uh, to, to cats and dogs. So um, uh, people spent a lot of time actually caring for uh, animals in the Ottoman Empire. And it was a model in many ways uh, for, for a care that didn't exist uh, at that time in the West. You, know, you can actually notice on, on mosques in Istanbul, there are quite often these elaborate birdhouses that are, are built right into the mosque uh, uh, for birds. There, there, there's sometimes a copy of the mosque itself or of another multi-story building. They're really interesting. And they were part of that care that the Ottomans took uh, for animals. Great. That was Ray Naylor on his book, The Mountain in the Sea. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrishedges.substack.com.